Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. It should come as no surprise to those of us who spend our time, really our lives, in the uplands, um, that nature has a way of positively impacting, influencing who we are and how we feel about ourselves, about the world around us, about our friends, our family, really about everything. This month, the month of July at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, we're going to dive deep into the health benefits of the outdoors both physically and mentally, as part of our ongoing Path to the Uplands content series. We hope this content will inspire you to explore your own experience in the Uplands. And uh, we want to give a special shout out to Alps Outdoors for being the July sponsor of our Path to the Uplands content. We'll remind you that they are have invested not only as a, as a corporate partner, but they're investing in the outdoor lifestyle. They, they, it, it's part of their ethos as a company to quote unquote, save the lifestyle. So definitely check out Alps Outdoors um, on today's episode of On the Wing Podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Marissa Jensen, our Women on the Wing. Uh, what, what's the right term? Program manager? Yeah, Is that one right? Of those things, yeah. <laughs> and and Path to the Uplands really was Marissa's brainchild. So it's it's natural that. Um, with this episode being dedicated on um, towards Path of the Uplands, that Marissa would be riding shotgun, figuratively and literally, <laughs> so to speak, on this episode. So, Marissa, I'll, I'll give you the uh, the proverbial microphone as a baton, and you can introduce our, our featured guest for today. Yeah, thank you, Bob, and um, really excited to be here and. Um, really excited more than anything to have this conversation uh, with our guests today. Uh, so joining us on uh, this episode of On the Wing is David Gutierrez. Um, and David Gutierrez is our regional uh, representative for the West and um, just really excited to get into uh, why he's on today's show and how the outdoors have really impacted him um, in his journey. So. I'll uh, I'll let David introduce himself as well here and give a shout out to all of our listeners. Well, thanks, Marissa, and thanks, Bob. Uh, my name is my name is David Gutierrez, and I'm the regional field rep for PF and QF in the Southwest. So I cover Arizona, California, Nevada, New Mexico, and also Hawaii. Um, yeah, I grew up in small town Iowa. I didn't grow up hunting, which can be kind of strange for an Iowa boy. Uh, to say, but it was very much a part of the local community. But uh, my family wasn't a family of hunters. I did a little fishing as a kid, but uh, but that was it. And uh, I left I left Iowa in 2000 and went to college up at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. 
studied international studies in Spanish, spent a couple couple semesters in Central and South America, and then enlisted in the Army toward the end of my senior year. So about a month after I finished college, I went off to training, and I served as a member of the U.S. Army Special Forces, which are commonly referred to as Green Berets, and I did that from hmm. 2004 to 2015. And I kind of split my time between Latin America and Afghanistan when I was doing that. Um, I left the Army in 2015, worked most of 2015 as a defense contractor out of the D.C. area, but I spent the bulk of that time in Afghanistan again. And then realized I kind of, kind of wanted to, to make a change of, of uh, careers, so I left that job. At the end of 2015, I went back to school, and I ended up getting a master's in creative writing from the University of Michigan. Um, I finished grad school right in the midst of the, the COVID lockdowns, which was less than ideal timing when it comes to the job search, but uh, it actually worked out really well in that uh, fast forward a few months through the pandemic, and I, I ended up finding a job posting with PF and QF, and I applied and, and interviewed and ended up landing the position. So I moved out to Arizona uh, in November of 2020, and I've been there ever since. Well. We have a lot of things in common, and so I, in in you know for listeners, this is the first time. You, how many how many months have you been on, David? Did you say? Uh, I think mid October I started, so okay. uh, about nine months now. And this is the first time I've I've had an opportunity to chat with you, but you know you got some Michigan roots there. Go go Wolverines. <laughs> And a, oh a creative writing degree. That's pretty cool. Uh, I, so call it out. Like it was fun how you said that you're the regional representative for Arizona, Nevada, California, and you and you squeezed in. Oh, and Hawaii. <laughs> um, and I believe uh, we have one active chapter in Hawaii right now. No, okay, so they. So there you go, listeners. Uh, we we have an opening for a chapter in Hawaii. If uh, if you'd like David to, to come over to the Big Island or one of the little islands and start will, a chapter, I will happily take that trip. Maybe uh, maybe we can have some some marketing or outreach folks join me if if you know the need is there. So open invitation. <laughs> and Sold. Uh, so yeah, no doubt. And and a. Um, a fun nugget is there there are pheasants in Hawaii, actually a fair number of them. And I believe they're connected to the um, like the pineapple orchards in in Hawaii. At least I haven't been there to do any firsthand research, but that's what I understand. Is that accurate, David? Do you know? Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to be careful with with how detailed I get because I don't want to screw up the, the actual facts. <laughs> but I, I think there are... A, a handful of upland game species, uh, game birds that you can hunt there. Um, and mm -hmm. from what I hear, it's it's quite good. You can do some some upland hunting and then, you know, get a pretty view at the ocean the same day. So um, it's something I need to be digging in a little bit more, and especially as states open back up. Uh, I'll, I'll be pursuing any chapter opportunities there. Um, it sounds like a pretty incredible spot. So, Yeah, no doubt about it. It's uh, it. It comes up about six, every six months. There's a random email from Hawaii about potentially starting a chapter, and we've had chapters get started there from time to time, but they never have really stuck. 
and held a banquet and held an event. So that's why I thought that we still maybe had one active, but um, there you go. There's the opening. If you're listening and you're in Hawaii, help us start a chapter in Hawaii as a result of this podcast. <laughs> that'd be, that'd be really cool. Um, you talked about your, your background in the military, not, not really growing up as a hunter and then coming to hunting after the military. And that's where we're going to dive in to the meat of this conversation and how that quote unquote path to the uplands for David, um, was, was sort of tracked. Um, so we're going to, we're going to spend our time there. Um, before we dive in a couple words from our partners, uh, shout out to South Dakota tourism and South Dakota game fish and parks, uh, create your pheasant hunting story in a state loaded with tradition, find public land maps and planning tools for a South Dakota adventure, adventure of your own at huntthegreatest.com. And remember, as we're uh, moving through summer here, the time is now to figure out where you're going to go hunt in South Dakota this year. Um, secondly, I want to give a shout out to the official ammunition of, of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, Federal premium ammunition here's a word from federal the flush so fast it hardly seems real so vivid the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers it's why we change the way upland loads are built with prairie storm exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense deadly shot strains through any choke longer shots more power, fewer missed birds, only from Federal. All right. So as we transition to kind of the meat of this particular episode, um, David, I'm going to read some words, your own words, back to you. So not that that's too weird, but it, um, it, you, have a, you have a blog uh, about your path to the uplands on the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever website right now. And I'll, I'll direct listeners. It's titled Solace in the Outdoors, and it's on our websites right now. And a, a couple sections of, of that particular article really, really um, moved me. And I want to read a paragraph to open up this section of the conversation. The, these are David's words. I spent much of my 20s in the rocky deserts of Helmand, province, did I pronounce that right, David? Helmand province, Afghanistan, living, working, and sleeping out of a modified safari-style truck. There were gunfights and sleepless nights, hours of boredom between raids, laughter with friends and teammates, some of whom never came home. I miss those days, and yet I don't. I've spent much of the last six years increasing the distance between my old life and me. I sold, tossed, and gave away my old uniforms and gear. I left my awards and medals with my mother as she worried I'd throw them away. I'm not bitter about my time in the Army. I just didn't know how to quite 
quiet my experiences well enough to live a life that was different and good. Uh, there's there's a lot there that's that moved me, David. First of all, thank you um, for for your service. Um, I I don't know that we, any of us thank folks like you who give of your time in a portion of your life to protecting the freedoms that so many of us unfortunately take for granted living in suburbia, you know, living in in a, the greatest country in the world with so many freedoms and so many benefits. Um, so first of all, thank you. But I, I'm curious, um, your experience in the military, um, it, clearly in your words, um, it left some struggles mentally for you. Um, maybe, maybe vocalize what that paragraph sort of had, what, what you go through coming back from Afghanistan, come back to, from another country and trying to find peace and return to quote unquote normal. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot there. Um, coming home and kind of the schedule I had while I was in the military, we just, we kept busy. So a lot of those deployments were, were back to back. You'd do, you know, eight to 10 months overseas, six months back. And a lot of those six months were, were still spent training. You'd go back overseas again, maybe come back for a year or so. Um, you might go to Latin America, you might go to a training course. So there was never much time given to processing those experiences. You just sort mm -hmm. of tucked it away, the good and bad, and kept moving forward. And, and I kind of developed a habit of loading my schedule enough and just staying too busy to really ever have to address anything. Um, and so when I transitioned out, I, I went from, I think my last trip in uh, Afghanistan, I was, you know, you'd work between 12 and 16 to 18 hours a day. Um, it was pretty, pretty common. And so I went from having a schedule like that seven days a week to returning to Iowa to take some undergraduate writing classes. Uh, I had a, a, you know, some money in the bank, figured I wasn't going to work. I'd just be a student and kind of pump the brakes for a while. And it was a bit of an overcorrection as far as my schedule was concerned. So yeah. I, I went from not having enough time to think about uh, really anything that I'd experienced to, to having a good 12 to 15 hours a day trying to write, you know, the only thing I wrote about that wanted to come out happened to be war or conflict or something related to that. Mm. And uh, it was, I, I had foolishly had the expectation that, hey, as soon as I leave that world and stop deploying, like, all oh, that's just going to go away and I'll be fine. And, you know, it's the exact opposite. It kind of hit all at once. Um, I didn't have a lot of good coping skills for how to deal with that. Uh, I came from, you know, special operations and special forces is a very very, very much a team environment. It's an insulated community. You know, I would live with these guys overseas. We, I lived, two of my roommates were, were teammates as well um, at the last house I lived in. You know, you're, you're constantly around someone and within that community with, with similar individuals with similar experiences. And then I, I went from that to, you know, living alone in a, in a one bedroom apartment in Iowa City, Iowa. And I suddenly didn't quite know what to do. And so, um, mm. like I said, I, I loved my time in the military and it was a phenomenal fit for that period of my life. 
Uh, I just didn't have the tools and I, and I also wasn't willing, at least initially, to seek those tools or resources out. So I was left kind of floundering for most of 2016, you know, some, some bad coping mechanisms that I carried back with me. And uh, yeah, it was a little bit of a messy year for me until, uh, you know, at the suggestion of my, my childhood best friend, you know, he said, hey, go get a bow. Uh, we'll deer hunt this fall. For, for both he and his father, you know, hunting had been kind of their form of, of outdoors therapy. And, and they thought, hey, maybe it'll be good for you too. Um, and so that was that that initial step. Um, and it was a very long and bumpy road from that point. But but hunting was kind of my first step towards trying to get a handle on things uh, since getting back from that last trip. It, it sounds like, and obviously we're going to talk primarily about the, the hunting component. It also sounds like both, both in the blog and your background and what you alluded to is writing, creative writing is also a portion of the coping mechanism. And the blog is beautiful. I mean, it's clear that you have writing talent, but that's that was a component of you dealing with the return too, isn't it? Very much so. Um, you know, I had, again, with that with that extra free time on my hands, you, you start to kind of go back through, through scenarios and think, you know, maybe I could have done this differently or I, you know, any number of, of kind of uh, unhealthy thought patterns. And so what I did is at first it was more just of a, a purge, you know, getting mm-hmm. things out. And I, and I wrote fiction, but it all started from somewhat of a true place. And then on those those moments that maybe I was second guessing, I would take that scenario and I'd start it from a true place and say, okay, here's here's what here's where it started. Let's let's take the option that I didn't take at the time and see where it leads. If there's any sort of resolution or satisfaction or you know settling of a score or revenge and it's something something like that, and I would kind of explore that and take some creative leaps and just say, okay, now how do I feel about that situation? Had it been, you know had a different decision been made. Sometimes it was satisfying or I I kind of made peace with what happened in the moment. Other times it was like, you know, I didn't maybe make the best decision, but I made the best decision I could at the time. And that other, had I, had I gone down this other road, it would have been unhealthy in a different way. So, you know, I I kind of looking back, I think uh, there aren't a lot of good decisions that happen in war. You're just kind of constantly making the least bad decision Hmm. at a given time. Um, And I, and that's been something that I had to kind of, get to uh through a lot of writing and a lot of uh sometimes there were good stories a lot there was a lot of a lot of junk that got thrown out and uh but it was it was a good process you know it was productive so i'm not a trained psychoanalyst so i'm not gonna (laughs) try to break break you down but as i read through your blog you know I, i connected the writing sort of a solitary introspective way of dealing with this and you know your 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 friend from Iowa invites you to go bow hunting, and bow hunting, at least my experience is extremely solitary, introspective, nothing but time on your hands to think. And I can see that being healing, but only to an extent. Um, and then, then I, what I'm real curious about is how you took the leap from bow hunting to bird hunting, because to me that. does open you up to more of that team environment that you you talked about how you got through war and military world with teammates and living with other people. And, and again, 
I'm I'm reading a lot into your blog here, so forgive me, but I, it was really moving. Um, it felt like there, you found a connection in the uplands, partially through a friend, mm-hmm. but to me, the the dog connection with the dogs became your teammates. Yeah, and even as again, I hardly know you, but what I it, I perceive is you love to hunt alone with your dogs in lonely places. Um, uh, there's a bit of introspection and in being alone, but then the companionship you feel with the dogs who can do no wrong is where you find joy and happiness. So I put a ton of words in your mouth. Um, I, I don't know how close to that is, is how you feel. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'd say you might have a second uh, career as a as a psychologist <laughs> when your when your days with PF are through. But, uh, <laughs> no, that, that's pretty that's pretty 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 on point if I can use that phrase. Um, you know, the the initial season bow hunting that was a year I, I very much needed to be alone um, with you know familiar people around me, but but able to keep it at a certain distance. And I think that solitude, you know, a lot of, like you said, a lot of hours in a tree stand, a lot of hours in a ground blind. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, it didn't feel the same as sitting at home in my apartment or staring at a computer screen trying to trying to start a story. It was, I don't know how you are. When I, when I get outside in an environment, um, kind of in nature, I get kind of a, a body buzz, like a tingling sensation. And it, it's very soothing to me. And so I remember being in a tree stand right at the start of October and having that sensation come through and just just being like, okay, this is, I don't quite know what this is. I know it feels good. I know I feel relaxed and whatever anxieties I would typically have from, from the past kind of lifted at least, at least for a while while I was in the tree stand. And I was just able to relax and kind of take a full breath, whether I saw a deer or whether I was just watching, you know, raccoons and squirrels playing around in the brush. Um, so I knew I wanted to chase that. And I had kind of previously been been doing like a lot of skydiving and stuff to get my adrenaline bumps and it, it became unsustainable. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, maybe, maybe this can be the replacement. Um, it's, there's an, obviously an adrenaline component that can come with hunting, but it's, it's a little bit different, at least for me. So that started. And then, like you said, the, the really intro to the uplands was the dog and I had always wanted a dog, you know, 20 plus years, kind of daydreaming, daydreaming about it. Um, my last deployment, I think I did about, I was in Afghanistan for six months and I'd say five of those months and maybe more than a few hours each day were spent researching different dog breeds and trying to, trying to read up on maybe where I'd get my entry point. And, and I wasn't sure, you know, how into the uplands I would get. So I, I got a, you know, my first dog's a Vishla. And I figured, okay, I can hunt with them. And then if all else fails and it doesn't take, I can, I can like run with them. I noticed a lot of triathletes had that dog. So that's, that was kind of my, my starting point. And then that's, that's what kept me hooked. The, the first day I went out and watched my dog work a field, um, you know, and he's far from perfect, but I was just, just like, okay, there's, there's no going back at this point. It's kind of all in. And then, then it was more an exercise in trying to accelerate my learning process as, as much as I could to try and catch up with my dog because he knows more about hunting than than I likely will for a lifetime but I'm, I'm just trying to keep up and do him proud <laughs> I'm just really curious you know um you said the bird dog obviously was a, a big component into getting upland um into the uplands but there's 
there's waterfowl, there's a lot of other ways to have that teamwork with a dog and different styles of, of hunting. So what was it about the uplands that, um, you know, brought you from the forest and the deer hunting into um, kind of pursuing birds in those wild places? That's a great question. Um, this may be like the gift of hindsight looking back. I don't know how, how conscious it was at the time, but I think what I see in the uplands is there's a little bit more opportunity. Um, you know, I love deer hunting, but I like to get out and move. I like to hike. Um, I like that I can hunt almost every state in the country and have a different set of challenges with every species of bird I chase. I, I don't think I'll ever become an expert at chasing any particular bird, but I know if I want to go hunt uh, in the mountains, I can go west and hit chucker territory or maybe some some of the different desert quail. Um, you know, I can come back home to Iowa and hunt pheasant and quail uh, around my hometown, and there's a very personal connection to, to coming back home to do something like that and share it with my family as far as the food is concerned, but also to reconnect with my my best friend and his family uh, when we go out and hunt. Um, his son shot his first rooster this last year with my first shotgun. I gave it to him. And uh, so I got a picture on on opening youth opening day with him holding two birds. And that was that was a fantastic feeling. Uh, you know, you have the grouse woods up in the up in the UP, which, Bob, I'm sure you're you're very familiar with that. Um, and I think I think there was just an appeal to the activity level of upland hunting that maybe waterfowl didn't quite have. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure I'll get into waterfowl at some point, but uh, but right now it's I'm just kind of all upland. I'll, I'll come back home to hunt uh, whitetail every three or four years when I have enough preference points. But uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's it's the team. It's me, me, and now two dogs, and uh, I'm I'm more than content to to keep to keep things at that for now. Uh, you mentioned adding a second dog. How, how was that? Um, how was that decision process, both from dog number two and breed selection? Yeah, so I, I knew I wanted a second dog for a while. And last year, uh, you know, before I was with PF, when I was interviewing uh, for other for other jobs, it was always kind of a, an assessment of, okay, can I live in an area? Will I be able to have two dogs? You know, do I need to board a second dog? It was this sort of constant uh, evaluation because I knew I wanted to have two. I'm sure I'll have three in a few years. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just going to go up. But um, it was more a matter of timing. So I was trying to time it when my, when my first dog was between two and four years old. Um, being in the Southwest, we actually don't have a lot of, I haven't seen a lot of English pointers down there, but that was kind of a breed that piqued my curiosity. Um, I figured I kind of have a late start to the to the upland hunting game. So I'm not tied to one breed whatsoever, but I thought, okay, I've got a Vishla, range is a little bit close. Um, I've heard about big running pointers. I know they, I've heard they do well in the heat. I think they're, they're a beautiful looking dog. And, and I do have a kind of a bias towards short hair just because I, I worry I might get lazy with the, uh, the shearing otherwise. But uh, yeah, I found, I found a breeder in Texas, uh, put a deposit down I think this past spring, maybe or winter, mm -hmm. and uh, and the timing worked out recently to where I I drove twelve hours to West Texas and then I had to drive to San Diego <laughs> for a, a chapter event. So I had a little puppy running around a chapter barbecue. Everybody seemed to love him. It was a lot of fun, and uh, and then I've he's done about fifty hours in the truck so far. So the crate training is coming along, but uh, I'll, I'll have my hands full for sure. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure I'll have a setter down the road, a GSP, a Brittany. You know, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm open to all breeds and, and all challenges. So, 
Bird dog variety is the spice of life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I may, you know, I may take that back in a year or two and say I'm only doing this breed from now on, but I, I think they all have something pretty cool to offer. And I've, I've been lucky to hunt over a few different breeds this past season. And they're all, they're all impressive for different reasons. So. Once you get your, your German short hair, you'll, you'll realize that that's, you're done. You've, you've got to figure it out. Go back, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you've, you've talked about this a little bit, but maybe ask a very pointed and see if you can put it into words. Um, you know, that, the premise of this particular episode is kind of the healing both physically and mentally components of the uplands and bird hunting and, and the, you know, the path to the uplands. Mm -hmm. Can you put into words what that experience has done for you? Um, you know, obviously the, the internal struggles you feel returning from war what the uplands has done for you in particular? Yeah, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. For me, I think, you know, the uplands represent a component of what I would consider like my foundation of just kind of maintaining an even keel. Um, I know that every year I have something to look forward to. I have now two dogs that, you know, I have an obligation to get them out, not just on a daily basis, but around birds. Um, you know, they're basically my children and I want them to experience, you know, as many species of, of wild birds as they can. And that's, that's an obligation sometimes that I'll, I'll tend to more than maybe an obligation that I feel toward myself. Um, but also I think it's ended up being not just a pursuit, but also a, a career opportunity. And I, I don't think I could have scripted a better place for me to be in as far as doing something I, I enjoy uh, working with people who have a similar passion for for the uplands and for conservation and for bird dogs and for hunting and the fact that I get to do that on a daily basis and uh, whether it's you know sitting in a chapter meeting or, or going out and hunting with a, a group of folks from a chapter mm -hmm. um, I feel incredibly fortunate and I think you know I when I was in grad school I maybe didn't have the healthiest outlook, but I was I was struggling with this question of what it means to to come back from war alive, and it was you know is surviving war, you know, a punishment or a second chance? And I think for a lot of years I didn't have a, a very clear answer, and I didn't know how to translate um, or just transition from that lifestyle into something that was like I said in the, the essay, just just different and good. Mm -hmm. um, I, I for I think for a number of years I didn't think I really could. Um, and I was always, I always had that temptation to dip back into that world just because it was something I knew. Um, and there was sort of a kind of a guarantee for employment, uh, if nothing else. And so, so hunting is, has kind of opened my eyes and, and the uplands have opened my eyes that, that there is, there is a life after special operations for me at least. Um, and it can be different and good and I can adapt and adopt components of my, my military past that, that I like. And I can apply it to, you know, I, I plan a hunt like I would plan a mission, um, you know, and, and it's it, it allows me to stay connected to my old life because it's very much uh, forever going to be a, a part of my identity. But it's just maintaining it in a healthier way. And, and I think that has been one of the biggest uh, positives I've found from from the uplands. And it's happened naturally. And, and I think I've only really started to scratch the surface on understanding the impact it's having. It's really interesting. I, I have a person that 
would love to hunt with you and you would love to hunt with him. And I'll go a different direction because I'm, I'm of the opposite. I, um, Matt Kaharski, our, our chairman of our board, who we've done a podcast with, he loves hunting like he loves scuba diving. And I don't know if you've ever scuba dived, but, and I haven't either, but he, he, he compares the two. It's like laying out the checklist, checking your gear, going through A, B, C, D, and same thing in a hunt, you know, we get out of the truck and he's like, okay, we're going to take that quadrant and then loop around that tree. And we're going, he plans out the entire thing to great, great delight. Right. I love hunting with Matt, but he, 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 he approaches it very tactical like that. And that's how I assume that you sort of, you, you probably got Onyx out, you know, figuring yeah. out, you know, where we're going to go, the boundaries, what looks good. And, and I'm more of the guy that, you know, pulls up, lets the dog out, the dog walks left. So I go left. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll pull precipitation charts for Arizona and find, you know, okay, where are the concentrations of three to five inches or more? And then I'll put those, translate those onto Onyx and uh, those will be my starting points. Um, I will say that doesn't always, you know, I try and hunt, I plan my hunt and hunt my plan, but that obviously doesn't always happen. Um, there, I think my, my more favorite memories are the ones where just the hunt went awry and my dog went off after a flock of ducks instead of where I thought the, the birds were, or I thought I knew where the quail were and didn't listen to my dog. And he's pointing them 60 yards to my left and then they flush before I can get close <laughs> enough. So um, it doesn't, you know, the planning process is usually pretty smooth. The execution depends on the day, but it's, but it's, you know, those are, those are some of my, my greatest memories is, you know, watching uh, the ones that get away and just mm. being like, well, that's, that one's on me and we'll try again. But, uh, but no, it's, it's enjoyable. And it, uh, I think the, the dog element has taught me to kind of let go a little bit to the planning process too. So do you ever connect back with, with any of the individuals that you served with and chat about kind of how you were able to find peace in the outdoors and, um, you know, see kind of what they're up to and, um, you know, provide any input for them on, on what's really helped you? Yeah. So I, I maintain pretty consistent, uh, communication with, with like a core group of former teammates, um, one of whom actually is, has kind of been my hunting mentor via text. He, he still has a pretty heavy deployment cycle, but, mm. you know, he convinced me to go dove hunting for the first time. He's, he's really working on me for waterfowl. That's, that's his passion. Um, so like I said, I'm sure that's a matter of time, but, uh, but yeah, we do talk. Most, most of them are still in the military or, or in that, you know, intelligence community world. Um, but there's always kind of a standing invitation to come out west and, and hunt. And, uh, you know, I'll try to get out east to where they're at as well at some point. Um, as far as, you know, talking about the healing component of it, I think a lot of times maybe that's un, unstated um, or un, left unsaid. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of my teammates were hunters, um, even in my early days on a team. And I, I didn't really understand it. I thought it was you know, I kind of had a, a snobbish attitude toward towards hunting wild game where it's like, well, if they're not shooting back, it's, is it really a hunt? And uh, I just didn't get it. It was a, it was a, an opinion or a viewpoint based in ignorance. And, and I saw a lot of them spend a lot of time and energy trying to plan hunts and inevitably cancel those plans due to deployments or training schools that they had to leave for. 
And so it just it just seemed to me like, well, I don't I don't really have the time or energy for it. But I think now, you know, now I'm realizing maybe the why behind it, even though we didn't talk about it so directly. Um, but I am trying to try to open up a little bit more about how helpful it's been for me and, and kind of the, the component has played in my my life after and kind of sorting through you know, my past experiences. This is the last time I'll read your own words to you. I promise. <laughs> okay. But um, again, uh, for folks, I want to point out uh, um, David's David's blog essay on our website and, and and call out that definitely should make a point of reading it. But um, I'm going to read the final two paragraphs, not to steal the thunder of the of the story, but. Um, they were incredibly moving and it, it opens up a discussion for me. Um, David's words. My favorite part of the hunt is the halfway point where we stop for water and rest. I try to pick a location with some shade and a view. It's the moment of solitude and insignificance I've been chasing to feel as if the massive landscape has swallowed me whole. I wait, sometimes 20 minutes, sometimes more, as the world settles around me. I take in the peace and quiet of the oak savannas, the desert grasslands, or the mountainsides. Once, I wasn't certain I'd live past the age of 25. Now, I hope to grow old exploring the uplands. I'll fill the coming decades with more dogs and miles underfoot. We'll camp beneath the stars and wake to cold, crisp mornings. We'll carve out a tiny space among the wildlife and quietly claim it as our own. That paragraph started off, that second to last paragraph, once I wasn't certain I'd live past the age of 25. It sure sounds, David, like what you found with bird dogs and landscapes and bird hunting is has made a monumental difference in kind of your piece. And I've never, until the first paragraph there that I read, I never, I don't think I've ever had anybody say that their favorite element of the hunt is the halfway point. And I love that from a creative writing perspective, you know, you found something unique. Um, but I explain Explain why that's your favorite. Um, you know, elaborate a little bit on, on why that piece has become your favorite element of the hunt. I mean, I, I think the, the biggest element is the, well, there, there are probably two. Um, it's the, the team element or the team aspect with the dog. Hmm. Uh, my dog can be pretty hard-headed. Uh, doesn't like to take water when he hunts. Uh, I have to put him on a lead at the halfway point, otherwise he'll just continue to pattern. So there's that kind of, my dog and I are very similar in a lot of ways. Well, that's and, exactly what I was thinking. Like yeah. you strike me as a guy that wouldn't even have a halfway point. Like you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. stop, you would just go. So for you to call it out, like to take the pause as your yeah. favorite. Yeah. And, and I think too, it's just a chance to appreciate what I'm doing. Um, you know, every day I'm out, I feel, I feel lucky. I, there's that paragraph about, uh, or that sentence saying, you know, I didn't think I'd live past the age of 25. Um, and so th there were days 
past where I, I kind of felt like I was just in extra innings or on borrowed time, you know, the, the older I got. And, uh, and then you realize you, you can waste a lot of years that way. And so now, um, you know, I feel as though I have something to look forward to. And, and I think acknowledging or expressing gratitude is a big part of that. Um, so kind of forcing a stop, you know, it's, it's necessary for the dog. He, he'll settle down after five minutes or so. He'll usually, he's a lap dog, so he'll crawl on my lap. He'll start to take water, you know, scratching him behind the ears. And I'm just, we're just sitting and enjoying the view. Um, and I get to look around and just realize how lucky I am to still be, still be on my two feet. Uh, I came out of, you know, a bunch of deployments without much beyond some, some bumps and bruises. Um, and I, I get to do this, you know, I get to hunt as part of, you know, outreach for my job. And it's just, it's incredible. Uh, and I, and I feel very fortunate. And I think that's a, a large portion of why I do like to stop. Um, you know, I've, even with the hunting, I, I very rarely will shoot a bag limit. Um, I'll probably miss more birds than I drop. And, and that's fine to me The the birds, the gift for the dog. So it's just, uh, I mean, I, I'm thinking specifically of, this past season, I was north of Phoenix a ways on a mountainside chasing gambles quail, and we'd shot a couple, hit the halfway point, and I'd seen where the cubbies, cubbies went to, um, so we were going to kind of hit them on the way back to the truck. And, yeah, my dog and me, we, we just sat near a big cactus, drank some water for about 30 minutes, and uh, I just loved where I was at at that moment in my life. And, and I, I think that I hadn't felt that way in a while and it was just good to stop and, and take that in. So. Hmm. It's, um, it's profound hearing you talk about your vision of experiencing the uplands and, you know, it, it sounds like you lost a lot of, people that were close to you as a result of being part of the green berets and, and your time in the military and, and it's given you the gift of perspective in a way. Um, and I guess I, I started this by thanking you for your, your military service. And I want, as we head towards the close, I want to thank you for, the perspective, I because I think we all sort of take for granted what's normal in a hunt, you know, the beautiful landscapes. Like, I remember back to Hank Shaw, the wild game cook and, and food writer, and he talks about, you know, there's all these different birds, and they all live in beautiful places, and they all taste different compared to what they eat and where they live. And sometimes you need somebody to remind you of that. And I think for me, and hopefully for our listeners, you're reminding us all of that. Like even a hard charging ex-military guy taking that 20 minutes midday could be the best component of the experience. Yeah, I, I really think it is. It's uh, like I said, it, it is my favorite part and it's maybe part of that is because I know there's another half of the hunt on the back end. So I have something to look forward to. So one thing you said that is nagging at me, and I got to ask, you said that, uh, 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 you know, sometimes you, you miss or you miss a fair amount. My assumption was every military, ex-military guy never misses. 
Like how, how so so <laughs> tell me like my assumption is like you have basic training, you guys just shoot a million rounds and obviously you're shooting rifles, but like um how different is it to shoot birds on the wing compared to you know the training that you went through? So initially it was it was frustratingly different. Huh. Um you know, I, I spent a couple of years as a, as a marksmanship instructor at my unit. So pistol carbine and, and long range precision rifle. And so I figured, oh, shotgun, you know, nice big pattern should be, shouldn't be an issue. And, uh, I took, uh, when I was in Michigan, I took a couple shooting lessons. Um, and to call it humbling, I think would be an understatement. It was just, it was borderline embarrassing. And the whole time I'm just thinking, you know, my dog's going to disown me if I don't, if I don't sort this out. Um, and, you know, a lot, a lot of the shooting we did in the military, you're, you're using your sights. It's not, uh, I mean, you're pointing the rifle to a certain extent, but they're, they're well-aimed shots. And so I had to kind of learn to, I mean, I, I just had to relearn how to shoot. You have, you know, the components of the mount, gun fit, um, follow through. Like if you're shooting a moving target with a carbine, it's going to be similar with follow through as it would be with a, uh, with a shotgun. Um, and the leads leads with like long range sniping. You're going to, you're going to have to deal with that as well, but it's a little more calculated. Um, you're having like a reticle to measure your leads and things like that. So I had to, I had to just kind of start over as a beginner, eat some humble pie. Um, there are, there are days where I, I can't miss. And then there are days where I've got a pocket full of empty shotgun shells and my dog's giving me some side eye <laughs> and uh we go home he goes in the kennel and i go to the clay range so <laughs> but I, I think that's you know i can be very uh outcome oriented hmm. which sometimes gets me into trouble so i one of the one of the great things about upland hunting um whether it's the shooting component or the dog component is I, i've let learning i'm learning i will say i maybe have not completely learned but i'm learning to let go of you know, an obsession over a specific outcome, if that's a dropped bird or a, a perfect point and more just enjoying the process, enjoying being like new and kind of bad at something again and, and figuring out my path to, to become better, you know, day after day. Hmm. Marissa, it, it questions that you want to, I'm sorry, I keep uh, firing away at David here. Questions you want to no. ask? And I've just been quiet because I'm just <laughs> enjoying the show. Um, I, this has just been extremely inspiring to chat with you about it, David. And, um, you know, the essay, like Bob mentioned, you know, I uh, encourage everybody to take a look at it. But, um, you know, it's it's something that I think we all experience in, in different ways, um, how the outdoors are, you know, a soothing place for us for all sorts of reasons. And um, just hearing how that helped you, you know, kind of find a different purpose um, was just really inspiring. So I really appreciate you sharing that story with us. I'm sure it's it's not always easy, but um, I know it will probably be um, something that a lot can relate to. Um, and hopefully some someone else will listen and decide to find their own path to the uplands because of what you've shared. So thank you for, you know, serving and, and thank you for sharing your story too. That's my pleasure. As we transition a little bit, talk more about your job and your role with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. You know, you talk, you talk about growing up in Iowa, 
Um, also spending some time in, in, in Michigan. I didn't connect how you ended up in the Southwest. Did you move to the Southwest specifically for the job with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever? Or had you already moved there when the posting came around? No, I moved for the job. So I had, uh, I think in 2019, I took a big month-long hunting trip out West. And I knew that if I could, I wanted to move that direction in, in the U.S. So I've lived, you know, in the Midwest. I've lived on the Gulf Coast in Florida, spent some time on the East Coast in the Carolinas and then D.C. And the West was kind of this untouched portion for me. And after that trip, I, it was it was again, it was like sitting in that tree stand. I went out there for a month and I was like, I don't know what I'm feeling right now, but something here feels good and right. And, and I need to hmm. find a way to get there. So um, when the I was in Iowa, when I actually found the job posting in my hometown and uh, I applied. And then I think, I think a month after it was offered, I, I moved to Arizona. Wow. And I'm used to picking up and moving. I don't have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of possessions. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a big, uh, a big, a big ask from the organization. So. <laughs> and you're enjoying it. I take it. Oh, I love it out there. It's, it's a little hot right now. Um, but uh, no, it's, it's incredible. My, my experience in Arizona before was, uh, limited to about a month I spent in Yuma learning how to, how to jump out of planes, um, which was very fun. But, you know, Yuma is an awesome town, especially when it comes to, to the dove opener. Um, but Arizona, there's just every landscape you can imagine they have um, from the mountains up north to the, to the sky islands in the south to the more desert flats in the, in the central portions. And I, I think it's a state I can, I can explore for a lot of years and only, and only scratch the surface with, with what it has. You're right. I mean, I, I didn't get to Arizona until I was in probably my early 40s. And I had a very Midwestern perception of Arizona that it was like Phoenix, the desert. And yeah. I went, I went, uh, I flew into Phoenix and then I went up to Pine Top for a concert. Um, and Pine Top for folks with like, it's being transported into Colorado, the Rocky Mountains, right? There's snow and elk, and then you drive to Flagstaff, and then as you say, the Sky Islands down south of Tucson. It's like if you blindfolded me and dropped me into the Sky Islands, I would swear on a Bible that I was in Montana. Because yeah. it, it's like you look around, and there's again mountains, snow covered mountains, and you're like literally staring at, at Mexico. But then yeah. you look behind you and there's snow-covered mountains and you're like, I'm in Montana. I know I'm in Montana. No, Bob, you're in Arizona. So you're <laughs> right. The topography and, and just the landscape differences and when with it, the different birds that exist there, it, it is really a kind of a, a bird hunter's paradise, especially somebody that's relatively new to explore and learn. It's just a wonderful place to live. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's going on uh, for Pheasants Forever, and particularly Quail Forever, because the majority of your chapters um, are quail, I believe, in Arizona. Uh, we got, a, I think, a new one in New Mexico, if I'm correct. We will be doing a, uh, we have a chapter start meeting, an in-person chapter start meeting uh, on August 4th in uh, northern New Mexico out of the Albuquerque area. So we did, a, I've been doing a virtual chapter start meetings, just, you know, kind of working around the logistics of travel and to make sure we have enough interest in a given area. 
And then, you know, with enough interest, we set a, an in-person date. So I'm just now setting dates this week. We have a, the in-person chapter start meeting in the Albuquerque area. We'll have another one in Las Vegas on August 17. We're firming up the, the specific locations of that. And then we'll have another in-person chapter start in uh, Reno on August 19th. Um, and then we have a another in-person chapter start meeting uh, for a potential women on the wing chapter down in Yuma. Um, there's a phenomenal women's hunting group uh, that has a, a learn to hunt series they've been doing for a few years now. And so we're kind of formalizing a partnership with them to, to keep that moving forward. And, and hit the states again that you, you work with the chapters in which states? Sure. Uh, Arizona, California, Nevada, New Mexico, and Hawaii. So if folks, maybe they're, they're volunteers or members haven't met you yet, or maybe they're not connected with a chapter and they're interested in getting one started. How do they reach out to you, David, and, and uh, get connected with the organization? Yeah, so there are a few ways you can reach me directly. Uh, the first would be just my work email, and that's dgutierrez, so D-G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z at pheasantsforever.org. And then I do have like a Facebook uh, regional rep page and that's uh, the little at sign and then D Gutierrez PFQF. So D G U T I E R R E Z PFQF. And I post uh, a lot of the events, uh, chapter start meetings. I, I have all that posting up on the, on the Facebook page. So you can find event information there as well as on our event center uh, site with uh, the PF and QF main websites. Outstanding. And folks, if you are listening and you haven't been involved before, we, we definitely would um, like to invite you to join our organization. We, we need more members, more activity happening for uh, particularly, again, for the quail species in the Southwest. And there's um, just so much opportunity to, to influence bird numbers in that part of the country that, you know, frankly, we just haven't uh, created momentum there until Till we got David on the ground. So uh, uh, hopefully you've listened and, and uh, feel a connection to him. I and mean, just a wonderful human being. And um, please invite you to reach out and get connected with our organization. With that, Marissa, I'm going to let you lead the lightning round. The lightning round. I feel like we need some music that goes with that. <laughs> All right. I've been dying to ask these, David. Uh, first off, favorite species of quail? I mean, from sheer aesthetics, I would say probably the Mern's quail. Um, I've, I've yet to shoot one. I've missed the two chances I had. It, it, so I think maybe that <laughs> there's a little unresolved uh, uh, issue there. One of them, I still had my shotgun open and the other one, they flushed right at my feet and just... Oh. I, I just kind of stared and then shot, uh, we'll call it like a, a prayer shot, a Hail Mary shot uh, <laughs> at the tail end of the covey. So, were they pointed? So yeah, but they're, what's that? Were, the, were those coveys pointed? The first one was not. Okay. Uh, the first one I flushed and it was about, I mean, between my legs and I was not so much hunting as taking a leisurely stroll sure. uh, through, through a spot in the Sky Islands. And I tried to close my shotgun. The breach was still a little bit open and I had the, you know, tail feathers oh, the, right where they needed to be. That doesn't even count. I mean, when they <laughs> dead, dead, dead trigger. Uh, 
<laughs> and just, you know, I was hunting with some folks from the Phoenix chapter and I just kind of hung my head and was like, well, <laughs> there's that. So, so yeah, but they're beautiful birds. I, I hope to, uh, you know, I, I very much appreciate their, their beauty and, and kind of the, the uniqueness of that species. So, um, yeah. Perfect. Well, kind of going along that theme, um, favorite bird to hunt, and it can be a species of quail or it can be any species of bird. I, th I think uh, it'd be gambles quail. Uh, I, I find that that's a challenging bird. It was kind of the bulk of the hunting I did this year was was for gambles quail. Um, they run, you know, in these big cubbies, and I think for the first few months of the season, really put my dog and me to the test, and we, we had a hard time kind of connecting. Um, and then it started to come together toward the end. So I, I think they're they're beautiful birds. Uh, you can find some big cubbies, which is awesome. Uh, they're hard for dogs and they, they require some, you know, fast and accurate shooting. So I, I really like that combination. And I like that I could find them in some more mountainous, mountainous terrain, but also in the flats. So you could kind of see a, a lot of different topography and still chase the same bird, but have a, a different sort of problem set to deal with as far as, you know, how you approach uh, trying to find them and shoot them. Hmm. I like that. Um, all right. So what's next on your list? What's, uh, kind of that bucket list? I want to chase this bird next. Boy, I think I've heard good things about mountain quail. So those are on the radar. Uh, there's some folks in California that have been talking that up. So I, I think I'm going to have to, to figure that out. Um, probably chucker at some point too, up there in Nevada or, or even in, uh, in the Eastern side of California. I saw my first wild chucker uh, while I was on a chapter visit in February. And uh, it was just like, ooh, you know, <laughs> first time I, I, gotta, I gotta come back and try this. So I, I think those will probably be the next two on the list um, in the near term. Yeah. Yeah, those will definitely, uh, those are some planning trips too, which will yeah. will be good. <laughs> I've heard good things uh, about Idaho as well. So I may, you know, Hell's Canyon is always the name that comes up. So I'm sure I'll get yeah. up there at some point. All right. Last but not least, favorite place to state to hunt. I know you mentioned a few states in your essay and I won't give away um, all the different places that you've been, but what's, what's your favorite place to go? Gosh. I can think of a lot of like, small components from each state that really stand out to me. I'll, I'll be like a little nostalgic and say probably Iowa um, just for, you know, it's, it's where my, my journey started. Um, I can hunt and have hunted with, with a few close friends, um, you know, right outside my hometown. It's an opportunity not just to hunt, but to spend some more time with family, which I, I spent a lot of years not doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I, I enjoy, I made the pheasant opener this last season, missed a layup shot on a rooster, which was, which was frustrating. <laughs> but uh, I also, I also did my first dove hunt here last year and, and uh, really enjoyed that as well. So for the, the purely nostalgia and, and connection with, you know, kind of community and where, and where I came from, um, I, I'd say Iowa, but I think I could, I could go through every, every state I've hunted, which is probably far fewer than the both of you uh, and find just, great things and, and great memories from every state. What, what are your pup's names? So my Vishla is Murphy. I think his, uh, his paper name might be, uh, 
like red dogs mac merchata which is like gaelic for for murphy mm. um and then my my new pointer pup is uh ozzy that's his call name and i think the the paper name's probably going to be like phantoms kincaid or something like that it goes back his father's name was skyfall so there's like the james bond movie kincaid was the uh, estate manager for the bond family and Kincaid was also like a grouse hunter in the movie. So I figured that would be a, a good connection. I need to register him. So please don't steal that name. <laughs> That's fun. I, I love, I love stories that go with dog names and you got them. That's great. Yeah. And Ozzy tur is turning out to be a good fit because he's a wild man. So I think Ozzy Osbourne would be proud. Um, I have my, I have my hands full. <laughs> Just don't feed him any bats. That's gotten all sorts of things in trouble. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll keep him away. Um, all right. Any closing thoughts, Marissa, as we wrap up uh, this path to the uplands uh, episode of on the wing podcast. I just want to thank you again, David. And um, I would love to hear from our listeners too, you know, if they have a story um, of their path to the uplands that, uh, you know, whether it be the health benefits, you know, mentally, physically, um, you know, whatever that may be, it would, it would be really incredible to hear how others have been touched by the outdoors. Um, and yeah, just to share with others and hopefully inspire someone else. And uh, how, how do you want folks to reach you? Oh, me. Good question. <laughs> I think we need to have them email you, Bob. <laughs> um, they can send them to me at mjensen, that's J-E-N-S-E-N, -E at pheasantsforever.org. Perfect. Perfect. Um, David, closing thoughts for you as we wrap up this episode of the podcast. I mean, first, thanks to, to both of you for having me on and, and also for just the help in uh, getting me started as a new rep. I've been bugging Marissa a lot lately with questions. Um, but for anyone listening, you know, whether you're a veteran or just somebody who's curious about the outdoors or the uplands, whether you want to get into the hunting aspect, the conservation aspect, the dog, the dog component, um, you know, give it a shot. Connect with a local chapter in your area. You know, reach out to me, whether you're in my area or not. You know, my email inbox is always open. Um, it's been incredibly uh, helpful to me to, to start stepping foot into this world. And I, I think it offers a lot to someone who's maybe looking for whether it's peace, solace, or just a chance to get outdoors and do something fun. So um, if you're curious, just take that first step. And if you need a little help, contact a chapter in your area. Super well said. And I hope listeners... Um... Really appreciate the last few weeks, we've had a, a number of our own team members on the podcast, including David. And hopefully you get a sense for just the unbelievable team of employees that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is proud to have um, employed serving all of you, the members, the volunteers. Um, David is, I mean, just go back and listen to this episode again. I mean, just the quality of human being here. Um, and as cool as that is, we've got 400 others that are, that are also just tremendous people. And I've raved about how many amazing biologists we have before. Um, hopefully if you're a member and you're listening, you feel good about those $35 that you got, that you're sending in to be a part of this organization because it's helping hire great people to fulfill our habitat mission and engage 
engage the upland world in uh, habitat conservation. Um, Marissa, thanks for bringing this concept forward. This was a real wonderful conversation. And David, I, I can't wait to, to meet you in person at uh, our first all team meeting post COVID is not too far in the near, not too distant future. And I look forward to, to shaking your hand. Um, it's a real pleasure to, to talk with you today and hear your story. And thank you for oh, thank sharing you. Yeah, no, my pleasure. And thanks to both of you. I look forward to meeting you both in person as well. So, All right, folks. Hopefully, um, we put together another episode that's compelling enough for you to, to get on board and join Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever. You can join on our websites, pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org, or even better yet, if you're uh, down there in one of the southwestern United States or Hawaii, um, please connect with David Gutierrez, D-G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. And we'll get you connected to one of our chapters or help, uh, help get a new chapter started. Uh, I'm Bob St. Pierre thanking you for listening and reminding you to always follow the doc. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.